Hello there, and welcome to Bowerbird, Oscar Wilde and the Curated Identity. I am your host, a scholar of no importance. Bowerbird is an armchair history podcast studying the life and work of late 19th century author and icon of celebrity Oscar Wilde through the lens of curation and the construction of the self. An intellectual biography of sorts presented in chronological order, I'll be discussing Oscar Wilde's collecting habits, from the literal and material, to the intellectual, the artistic, the social, and even the spiritual. Examining the way Wilde curated his world in order to fashion his complex and enduring identity. Bowerbird is intended for an adult audience, and sensitive topics may be discussed throughout. As always, a text version of the episode material, as well as source notes, will be available on my blog, ascholarofnoimportance.wordpress.com, after the show. Welcome to the first episode of the Bowerbird Podcast, a preface of sorts I call Formidable Intelligence and Unmoored Strangeness, Oscar Wilde's Parents. I was initially going to start this series with Oscar Wilde's childhood from 1854 to Wilde's entry into Trinity College in 1871, but as I began my research, it became apparent that I would have to start a little earlier than that. Oscar Wilde's parents were every bit as fascinating, self-fashioned, and complex as their youngest son would grow to be. So much so that even giving them their own episode barely scratches the surface. Like Oscar, the Elder Wilds defy containment or orderly study, but I have done what I can, with recommendations throughout for those who want to explore in-depth. Both of Wilde's parents came from the Protestant Ascendancy class, at the risk of trying to simplify an incredibly complex subject. Wikipedia describes the Protestant ascendancy as the political, economic, and social domination of Ireland between the 17th century and the early 20th century by a minority of landowners and Anglican clergy. The ascendancy excluded the majority from politics, most numerous among them Roman Catholics, but in truth excluded in some way anybody who wasn't in those categories. While a population minority, their proximity to the English crown and the Anglican church placed these distinctly Anglo-Irish people in positions of power over the Irish Catholic majority. Now, when I wrote the first iteration of this episode, I exclusively used this term, Anglo-Irish, to refer to the wilds. After all, lots of my sources do so, without any kind of challenge to that classification. Enough so that it seems standard, not just for the social strata they occupied, but for the wilds themselves. Given how long I've been a Wildean scholar, I should have known better than to assume simplicity in any aspect of Wilde or his parents' lives. During the editing process, however, I happened to stumble across a Twitter thread, as you do when you're procrastinating, from Eleanor Fitzsimmons, author of Wilde's Women, a book which I will reference at length later in this episode and almost certainly throughout the rest of the series. Regrettably, the thread to which Eleanor was responding has since disappeared due to the poster changing their privacy settings, and I didn't think at the time to screenshot it. Lost to time, I'll attempt to summarize. The original poster had used this term, Anglo-Irish, to describe the wilds, and Fitzsimmons was making an argument that this was not correct. Part of her reasoning is that both Sir William Wilde and Lady Jane had been born in Ireland. Sure, Wilde's paternal family was historically from England, but his mother's side was pure Irish. Jane's family was more recently arrived, but she, too, had been born in Ireland. While Jane would eventually leave, following her sons to England, perhaps more out of necessity as a widow than any real desire to leave home, William died in Ireland after a lifetime of devotion to the country, its culture, and its populace. Fitzsimmons argues that it doesn't make sense to refer to the Wilds as Anglo-Irish, 
given their having been born in Ireland and their mutual commitment to Irish causes and preservation of its history and culture. Fair enough. By that logic, I could see a case being made on Fitzsimmons' points to remove the Anglo from descriptions of the wilds. And, as Fitzsimmons is herself Irish, it seems reasonable for me to defer to her with regards to who counts as really Irish. But, based on other replies to both the tweet and Fitzsimmons' rebuttal to it, this is apparently something of a bone of contention among scholars. For some, there was a measure of agreement, stating that Protestant ascendancy and Anglo-Irish are not and should not be interchangeable terms, or perhaps that the latter is too broadly applied. Others felt that just being born on Irish soil wasn't enough to drop the qualifier, or even that Jane and William's devotion to Irish culture wasn't enough, for one reason or another, to override their social position in a particular strata of society. It's worth noting that this is not a new controversy. This argument about where exactly to settle Oscar Wilde or his family, even in their own time, will be one of the recurring threads that we follow through the series, the sense of perpetual otherness that clung to Wilde no matter where he went. In the end, I have not removed all uses of the Anglo-Irish designation from this lecture, but in the interest of a sort of middle ground on the matter, I have perhaps more thoughtfully evaluated its application throughout the text. All of the Wilds could be described as living on both sides of the Anglo-Irish hyphen, a cultural set increasingly at odds with their own Englishness, and part of a growing movement of ascendancy class who, perhaps paradoxically, backed Irish nationalism, sometimes including a complete separation from England, but most importantly, a return to a united Irish identity. Some scholars describe this group as more Irish than Irish, burning with a love of homeland rather than heritage. In a way, their loyalty was not necessarily to the Ireland in which they lived, with its potato blight and poverty and imperial violence, but to a dream nation of traces and fragments, the misty, mythologized Celtic Ireland of centuries past. The Wilds' elevation of Irish folk culture is admirable, preserving a culture that was in danger of being stamped out by famine and religious encroachment from both Protestant and Catholic forces, but it often feels tinged with a kind of paternalistic fondness common to colonial powers. The Wilds, Jane's especially, writing on the subject feels tinged with something that isn't quite as egregious as insinuations of noble savagery, but something else. The Celts is still a novel other, a creature of the land and old magic rather than a real person. They just happen to be an other deemed worth saving. Primitive, mythical qualities are assigned to a culture that is still alive if struggling against the very circumstances foisted upon them by the people scrambling to collect the bits and ends of their culture like dying butterflies. And it was those romanticized, semi-mythical qualities which Jane wished to imbue her son in naming him after Ossianic poets and Celtic warriors, even though she herself would often show her snobbery in comments about the very real and living Irish peasant class. Writers describe the Anglo-Irish as cultural orphans, not yet really the wealthy landowning class, bleeding an agriculturally crippled Ireland dry, and also not English enough to be accepted as part of the colonial upper echelon, but not necessarily viewed by their peers or historians as really Irish. On the plus side, the state of being culturally adrift quite possibly contributed to the Wilds' considerable development of self, since they were bereft of, but ever longing for, the imposition of society. They could essentially do as they liked, until they truly established themselves. By the time Oscar Wilde's parents, Jane Elgie and William Wilde, were born, the state in which they lived was in massive flux, and the Wilde's place in that evolving and often contradictory culture would become a cornerstone of Wilde's complex and hotly debated Irish identity, 
In some ways, the Protestant ascendancy set to which William and Jane belonged was like an unruly and unsupervised child of English imperialism. It instilled a desire to rebel and establish their own identity, however ineffectual or borderline superficial that rebellion might appear to be. In later episodes, we will talk about these hybrid identities both in the wider culture as well as in Oscar Wilde's particular case. And as we go through Oscar's life, particularly in the episodes on Wilde's move to England and the American tour, we will talk a little bit about how the complexities of national identity pertains to Oscar Wilde's work and his vision of his self. As it is, we see plenty of trademark Wilde paradox in his parents' commitment to the nationalist cause and in other aspects of their incredible lives. When Oscar Wilde spoke of his parents in De Profundis, he wrote, She and my father had bequeathed me a name that they had made noble and honored, not merely in literature, art, archaeology, and science, but in the public history of my own country and its evolution as a nation. Most people know of Wilde's mother, Jane Speranza Algie, and her contributions to literature and Irish nationalism, but somehow more expansive and yet considerably less discussed in Wildean scholarship are the contributions of his father in all of these categories and more. I could have done an entire podcast series on William Wilde. What I list here is but a bare-bones retelling. For an exhaustive catalog of Sir William's achievements, I recommend Amor O'Sullivan's The Fall of the House of Wilde. Whatever you have to do, do it with all your might, was the personal motto of Sir William Robert Wills Wilde. He was a man of innumerable accomplishments from a very early childhood, an Enlightenment thinker, and a true Renaissance man. He was a highly specialized surgeon, pioneering treatments in the field of eyes, ears, nose, and throat, a philanthropist and a gentleman scholar who took payment of cultural tales and wisdom from famine-era Irish peasants who did not have the money to pay for his services. He wrote books on a seemingly limitless range of subjects and assembled materials for still more that would be published after his death. He was as prolific in other outputs. He managed to sire at least six children, only three of which were with his wife Jane, though he acknowledged and provided for the other three illegitimate offspring, who were conceived prior to his marriage, with women he either would or could not marry. He lived life relentlessly, and while Oscar Wilde cultivated an outward appearance of indolence, a deeper study clearly demonstrates that he got his father's boundless intellectual energy. Jane describes William Wilde as a celebrity, a man eminent in his profession, of acute intellect and much learning, the best conversationalist in our metropolis and an author of many books, literary and scientific. William Wilde was a man of two worlds. He was an accomplished physician, receiving even royal honors, but he was a familiar presence at the bedsides of peasants in Ireland's western counties, and it seems that it was in this latter world that his interests and even occasionally his sympathies lay. He was part of that emergent ascendancy set who took an interest and even a duty in preserving the culture of the island upon which they and their ancestors had imposed. Sir William embraced a heritage that defied the Anglo-Irish social divides. His family on his mother's side, as I have said, was pure Irish, the long-established and wealthy Finns of County Mayo, and Sir William saw his ancestry as the perfect union of the Saxon and the Celt. In the very same text where Sir William Wilde would brazenly describe the indomitable spirit of the wronged and ravaged Ireland and the anguish of her conquest, he would write dedications to the English queen and to her rule. For any loyalty to the crown he might have professed to or benefited from, Sir William did not restrain himself from clearly indicating the links between the ravaged country's rampant poverty as linked with the unchecked spread of disease. 
He was committed to facts when pursuing and presenting his work, believing that the practice of scientific medicine as offering means of deliverance from historical catastrophe for Irish society. Also a prolific and devoted antiquarian, he worshipped Ireland's mythologized past, even he was determined to drag the country into the present by the rigid application of science in all his spheres of study. Sir William Wilde was born in 1815, a son of a doctor bound to continue the family business. He studied surgery in Dublin and applied himself tirelessly, once sitting his exam so sick that he collapsed immediately upon completion. Still managed to first, somehow. After five years of hard work and some extensive socializing, he was licensed by the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. He had also managed to somehow find the time to bring one Henry Wilson, mother unknown, into the world, and this was perhaps a factor in his decision to go abroad almost immediately upon completion of his education. The newly minted Dr. Wilde took a job as the resident physician to a man described vaguely as an invalid, though in his capacity attending to this invalid, he became an accomplished world traveler in just a short time. He and his patient wandered the seas on a massive yacht, moved by the whims of climate and curiosity. Apparently, whatever his duties to the patient were, Wilde had plenty of time to educate himself as a gentleman scholar of the world. William documented his travels in a book informatively, if perhaps clumsily titled, Narrative of a Voyage to Madeira, Tenerife, and Along the Shores of the Mediterranean, including a visit to Algiers, Egypt, Palestine, Tyre, Rhodes, Telmessis, Cyprus, Greece, with observations on the present state and prospects of Egypt and Palestine, and on the climate, natural history, and antiquities of the countries visited. The subject matter was as boundless as the geography. Bird life, plants, antiquities, climate's supposed impact on health, street dogs, capital punishment, Modes of dress, Napoleonic war sites, royal tombs, and meditations on the beauty of the local women wherever he went. This travelogue was to be two volumes by the time it was published and presented to the world. He became known as a daring explorer, though rather than resting on his globe-trotting laurels and becoming a gentleman of lecture upon his return to Ireland, Sir William returned to his medical education, becoming a specialist in diseases of the ear and related systems. This further education took him to London, Berlin, Vienna, and Heidelberg, further making him a man of the world that never lost his love of his native Ireland. And all before the age of 23, when Sir William Wilde was admitted as a member of the Royal Irish Academy in recognition for his work unearthing and cataloging Neolithic settlements, around the same time that he was opening his own medical practice. A cornerstone of Sir William's success may have been that he was an active Freemason, which would have given him the guidance and social connections for his career and charitable efforts. In our episode on Oscar Wilde's Oxford years, we will discuss Oscar's relationship to Freemasonry, which would become one of his many on-again, off-again relationships. William Wilde's accomplishments meant that he was rapidly becoming a member of the Dublin savant social set, men who achieved acclaim not necessarily from wealth like their peers, but from academic prestige. It was in this set that the antiquarian field of Celtic revival flourished. In a way, by being at the forefront of the efforts to preserve native Irish culture, the Dublin savants and their fellows were making a space for themselves where they were otherwise somewhat adrift. If they had the means to preserve and restore Ireland's history to her people, especially a Celtic history which predated the heavy social and religious divisions of Ireland, then they would be, in their way, part of Ireland's revolution rather than sitting in opposition to it. At the age of 30, Dr. Wilde became the editor of the Dublin Journal of Medicine and elevated the prestige and impact of that publication during his editorship. He had a rich social life, and continued attending lectures at his many spheres of interest, revising his books and producing new volumes and turning out articles. He opened a dispensary for the poor near his practice and became, despite his relative youth, a medical philanthropist, especially with regards to the Irish peasantry. He also, throughout his career, would accept information relevant to his antiquarian interests in lieu of payment. His wife Jane writes, By the peasantry he was particularly loved and trusted. 
for he had brought back joy and hope to many households. How gratefully they remembered his professional skill, always so generously given, and how, in the remote country districts, he would often cross moor and mountain at the summons of some poor sufferer, who believed with simple faith that the great doctors they called him would certainly restore the blessed light of heaven to blind-struck eyes. In return, they were even glad to aid him in his search for antiquities, and to him came many objects of the peasant class for his inspection and opinion. And she also recollected that he would hire people for this purpose. He would employ very many people, schoolmasters in the villages chiefly, who could speak both Irish and English to investigate and collect all the local traditions, superstitions, etc. of the peasantry. He was appointed medical census commissioner, a difficult position that he held intermittently over the course of many years. He was the commissioner of 1841, 1861, and 1871, and while not the commissioner for the 1851 census, he was appointed medical advisor and compiler of reports a job which entailed collecting exhaustive reports on the health of the Irish population during a time of terrible famine and widespread disease. Sir William's respect for, and rapport with, the Irish people around him made his tenure as the census taker successful where other efforts had failed. He was not only willing to do the work, perhaps motivated by a need to establish himself and bring in a little extra money, but also by his ceaseless desire for information. But he was also capable of doing it brilliantly, devising systems of reporting and recording that made the Irish census unique and especially detailed for the time. Such detail is especially useful because the 1851 census would become indispensable as a record of public health since it catalogued the impact of the famine years. He was incredibly busy, often impossibly so, having sometimes to employ the assistance of more than a dozen clerks and causing him to have, by his own admission, impaired my health by the incessant daily and nightly labor devoted to this voluminous work. In the end, Sir William's medical report on the census of 1851 amounted to 600 pages and included a history of Irish medicine and detailed accounting on the public health crises caused by the famine, which he directly linked to the poverty caused by the exploitation of the Irish people. Sir William published countless articles and textbooks on oral surgery and diseases of the ear. He developed surgical treatments for the same, including the so-called Wilde's incision, which is no longer used today, but which may have been used in 1900 to treat the separating ear injury or disease that was killing his son by agonizing slow degrees as he lay in that Parisian hotel room with the appalling wallpaper. Though, this is admittedly somewhat hypothetical due to lack of clear records. He was given innumerable accolades, including being made an honorary member of the Antiquarian Society of Berlin and receiving an honorary doctorate from Trinity College, which his son would later himself attend before moving on to Oxford. Sir William Wilde was also a member of the Institut Afrique of Paris, Imperial Society of Physicians of Vienna, Geographical Society of Berlin, and the Natural History Society of Athens. His extensive and exhausting to produce catalogue of Irish antiquities is still in use at the National Museum of Ireland, a Herculean contribution to the fields of antiquarianism and archaeology. In 1864, Sir William was also given a knighthood in recognition of his extensive work, which went beyond medicine and included antiquities, literature, ethnography, and geography. He would also be appointed Oculus in Ordinary to Queen Victoria, though this is a largely ceremonial title as the Queen did not, as a rule, venture much into Ireland, further expanding the wild social circle and their power in Dublin. His works were widely read and were said to have an incredibly at-ease way of writing that gave a sense of not only being an excellent writer, but also a brilliant speaker whose voice came through in whatever he wrote down, which makes sense as he was a man accustomed to the podium. In later episodes, we'll talk about Wilde's compositions being informed by an oratorical style as well. He was a man of seemingly 
boundless energy, though in their married life, Jane described that he would sometimes be afflicted with cycles of anxiety and depression that at times made him a difficult partner. Quote, When I ask what will make him happy, he says death, and yet in the next hour, if any excitement arouses him, he will throw himself into the rush of life. His own existence is one of unceasing mental activity. Sir William Wilde also managed plenty of scandal. It seems he had somehow had time between all his various achievements to add two more children outside of wedlock to his family line, Emily in 1847 and Mary in 1849, who were again given over to William's relatives instead of their unknown mothers, though Sir William would continue to support all three of these illegitimate children. Sir William would bring still more scandals down on his family, which I will touch on briefly in later episodes as an early introduction for Oscar to the drama of the libel courts. But like Oscar, Sir William was, in his own and sometimes contradictory way, a loving father and a supportive husband once he found the right woman to settle down with. That William Wilde was one of Ireland's great men of history is beyond doubt, but one cannot truly speak of Oscar Wilde's incredible beginnings without speaking at length about his mother, Lady Jane Wilde, known more broadly and simply as Speranza. Without Lady Wilde, there is simply no Oscar, an extraordinary man raised by an extraordinary woman who is as complex and inexplicable as her son would grow to be. I will endeavor not to overwhelm the listener with details, but any attempt to summarize Speranza is as titanic an effort as any efforts would be for Oscar. But as ever, I have done my very best. I highly recommend Eleanor Fitzsimmons' book, Wilde's Women, How Oscar Wilde Was Shaped by the Women That He Knew. In her book, Eleanor Fitzsimmons describes Jane beautifully. Truly, Without Jane, there could be no Oscar as we know him. Since time began, society has expressed a fear that too much motherly love and protection may make a son less manly, while not enough may make him cold. Jane Wilde loved her children dearly and demonstrably. She left her mark by means of the force of her personality and the influence she brought to bear on every aspect of their lives. Through her wit, intelligence, and innate sense of social justice, she gifted them an incomparable role model. Yet, through her extreme self-belief, her worship of genius above all else, and her indomitable faith in their superiority, she may have set both up for a fall. She was wonderful, but she was deeply unconventional, and she lived in an age when conformity, particularly for women, was insisted upon. And in this passage, we can see hints of both the triumphs and difficulties of Jane's life, which made such lasting impressions upon her family as to perhaps shape their destinies. Even the most basic facts of Sperenza's life are an exercise in the family penchant for myth-making that is the impetus for this entire series. A lackadaisical relationship with the truth of life's dullest details that Lady Wilde would pass down to her son. Jane frequently told contradictory stories as to her own age and birth year, which could be readily done at the time due to somewhat bureaucratically lax record-keeping. Scholars generally accept that December 27, 1821 is as accurate a date as any, provided on official documents applying for a grant from the Royal Literary Society. She also liked to get inventive with family history. Her actual parentage was strange enough. When Jane was around four years old, her father died under mysterious circumstances in Bangalore, far away from a family he seems to have abandoned. But Jane was taciturn about her actual background, preferring tenuous contrivances instead. The most famous of these was a familial link to Dante Alighieri, the famous Italian poet. She drew on a highly inventive interpretation of family names. Her maiden name, Algi, she claimed, was a corruption of the 16th century Italian Algiati, or maybe Algiati, which was itself also a linguistic offshoot of Alighieri. 
There is, of course, no substantiated genealogical or linguistic connection between name or family line, but it seems that the self as a highly changeable medium was established early in Oscar Wilde's pedigree. Jane would be tied to greatness by any means necessary. If her own was not recognized because of her gender, she would align herself with a genius in her bloodline, however brazenly such a connection might be merely imagined or invented. In any case, Jane grew up in a fatherless home, raised to witness firsthand the precarity of a woman's position in this world, as well as being left somewhat to her own devices in terms of becoming her own woman. Jane's education was largely down to her own efforts, and this early struggle to satisfy her voracious intellect formed a cornerstone of her proto-feminist beliefs the need and right of women to receive a formal education. Self-taught, she moved at her own pace and according to her own whims, describing her mind as a portal open to all points of the compass to receive influences. In an interview towards the end of her life, she said that till my 18th year, I never wrote anything. All my time was given to study, and that she succeeded in mastering 10 of the European languages. This interest in proficiency with language was something she would pass on to Oscar. Also, 18 years to study before she put her own words to paper feels like Jane taking in hungry handfuls of the world, whatever she could get a hold of given the limits imposed by society on so brilliant a young woman. The novelist William Carleton described Jane as the most extraordinary prodigy of a female that this country, or perhaps any other, has ever produced. She is acquainted with all literature and languages and all history, ancient and modern. As a member of the Ascendancy class, Jane could have had little interest in or use for the contentious politics of Ireland. But when the burgeoning cause of Irish nationalism did catch her eye, she described this as, Nationality was certainly the first awakener of any mental power of genius within me and the strongest sentiments of my intellectual life. And she threw herself into the rising tide of the cause. A humanitarian cause, yes, but one which Jane freely tinted with romanticism. Her joining the movement is at least in part attributed to the death of a 30-year-old Young Ireland member named Thomas Davies. As expected, accounts vary wildly, but the general gist of the story is that Jane was greatly moved by the poet's work and the cultural response to his death. Both Oscar Wilde and family friend William Butler Yeats tell a story of young Jane witnessing the poet's funeral procession, while even the lady herself claimed she had merely read a shilling volume, The Spirit of the Nation, and that was enough to cement her opinion of the deceased as an incarnation of passionate genius, the most powerful of poets, and the most brilliant of essayists. Poet worship, too, would someday pass to her son. Wilde's veneration of romantic poet John Keats comes to mind, among others. Wilde describes his mother's family as an atmosphere of alien English thought, unable to reconcile the path his mother cut for herself with the rest of her family's ultra-Protestant unionist politics. Despite the class of her upbringing, Jane's approach to politics became infamous for its borderline extremist passion as the Great Famine ravaged the Irish population. Speranza's political and artistic paradox was one she passed down to her youngest son. She railed against the establishment while ultimately being dependent on, and later in life, uplifted by it. Jane credits her political awakening with kindling her artistic fires. She was suddenly moved to write poetry, as her heroes in the movement did. It is interesting to note that the first works published for Jane by Thomas Davies' colleagues at The Nation were actually translations of revolutionary verse, striking in both their skill and scope. Jane contributed translations of Russian, Turkish, Spanish, German, Italian, Portuguese, Swedish, Latin, and Greek. I say this not to undercut Jane's work in the slightest. Poetry translation is an art unto itself, and in the next episode, when we discuss Oscar Wilde's early education, we will examine how this art of poetic translation was instrumental in the young Oscar Wilde's development as a poet. Jane her revolutionary efforts in secret, and developed two pen names to distance herself, 
as both a member of the Ascendancy class and as a woman. As well as her most famous pen name, Speranza, she also signed her work as John Fanshawe Ellis. Of course, her family found out anyway. Naturally, they were aghast, but for young Speranza, it presented an opportunity to begin openly presenting herself and her increasingly passionate commitment. The nation's editor, Charles Gavin Duffy, was gobsmacked at the revelation that one of his newest contributors, this John Fanshawe Ellis, was in fact, quote, a tall girl whose stately carriage and figure, flashing brown eyes, and features cast in a heroic mold seemed fit for the genius of poetry or the spirit of revolution. Miss Elgie had probably heard nothing of Irish nationality among her ordinary associates, but as the strong and generous are apt to do, had worked out the convictions for herself. In her way, Jane was smothering in a kind of impotence, trapped by her gender and the cultural alienation of an Anglo-Irish identity. But she could still howl and cry out for change, for revolution that would never truly come about, perhaps committed more to ideal than action, but her ideal and her intellect were all the weapons that she possessed. Eventually, her artful translations weren't enough to express her feelings on the matter, and she began writing her own verse, which at times dared to edge into the violently treasonous. This came somewhat to a head when her colleagues were arrested for a particularly inflammatory piece that called for a hundred thousand muskets glittering brightly in the light of heaven, and Jane was bound to reveal herself as the author for the sake of his innocence. For once, her gender worked somewhat in her favor, as she wasn't perceived as nearly so dangerous, as a woman was, quote, not a formidable opponent to the whole military power of Great Britain. Still, she basked in the infamy kicked up by the revelation, saying, I think this piece of heroism will make a good scene when I write my life. Speranza's gender protected her somewhat from the dire consequences of her sentiments, as well as almost certainly depriving her of some much-desired infamy. When the court refused to try her after exonerating the male colleague, the Solicitor General insinuated that he assumed that she had been led into foolishness and did not wish to stain her reputation by outing her via the witness box. Despite her claims that the court proceedings had thrilled her, she wrote to a friend that it had actually quite shaken and disillusioned her with the way things seemed cut off so abruptly in the wake of it. All the same, her contributions to the unrest of 1848 won her social acclaim in Dublin and would make her a heroine to Irish at home and abroad. And as such, her son Oscar would be granted status in America, but it was not necessarily afforded to him by the culture at large. Wilde was raised to admire the men of the failed 1848 rebellion as his mother did. In his own words, he was trained to love and reverence them as a Catholic child reveres the saints of the calendar. Despite losing some of her fire, and no matter how far she and William ascended up the social ladder, Jane always made a point to laugh at the establishment to which she owed her privileges, which is a highly familiar position for fans and scholars of Oscar Wilde's society plays and commentary. A journalist describing Sperenza's response to the end of the attempted rebellion of 1848 wrote, to the overwrought spirit of the poetess, who had been brimming ever with hope and faith in many such verses, the aftertime of despair must have been terrible. But her tremendous intellectual powers, now truly awakened, remained insatiable, and she re-immersed herself in her literary studies, again finding outlet in translation. Her translation of Sidonia the Sorceress by Wilhelm Meinhold saw Jane Wilde embraced by the Pre-Raphaelites, an unconventional artistic circle, which would later be of tremendous influence and opportunity to Oscar. Speranza's translation of Sidonia is considered to be a keystone Pre-Raphaelite text, and Dante Gabriel Rossetti was said to reference and quote from this translation, quote, incessantly. Wilde shrewdly leveraged these connections. His mother had lent herself to Rossetti's artistic makeup just as she and Rossetti himself had contributed to Wilde's. And we will talk about this in the next couple of episodes. Her literary endeavors were a desperate antidote for what Jane called the idle life of ladyhood, which nearly drove her mad in its helpless vacuity. But how many lives we live in life. Jane was proud of her tendency to shift and reinvent herself as she went along, so it's no small wonder that Oscar Wilde would see this act of invention and reinvention as the mark of an intellectual artistic soul. 
While she had little use for beauty, fashion, on the other hand, was a useful outlet, an outward expression of herself. And that expression was a chaotic, arresting refusal to be ignored. Even in her poorest years, Jane always dazzled, and sometimes baffled, with her manner of dress. Already an incredibly beautiful and striking woman, with her long, statuesque face and extraordinary height, Speranza commanded further attention by wearing absolutely wild outfits that were often at odds with present fashion, or even what some of her contemporaries considered good taste. I should like to rage through life, she said. This orthodox creeping is too tame for me. Ah, this wild, ambitious nature of mine. Much like her son, Speranza's self was built riddled with paradox. Apart from her previously discussed status as a member of the establishment, who nevertheless championed for violently running off the colonial parasites, scholars often remain baffled by Speranza's approach to gender politics. Speranza was described as impatient with drawing room chit-chat and a blue-stocking, which is a term used to indicate an undesirable female intellectual. Unable to bear the social expectation that merely wanted her to sit around, look pretty, and be married off to some useless man and have nothing of her own in the world. Jane railed against the exclusion of women from educational and professional spheres and against the ways women were legally and financially disadvantaged in society. All of these injustices she felt keenly herself at one time or another in life. Many scholars find this early feminist approach at odds in particular with Speranza's view of marriage, though she had voiced opinions about other ways women did or did not belong in social movements, etc. prior which was that Jane felt that a woman should remain unwaveringly loyal and support her husband. Even in the face of personality flaws and scandal, few women would expect themselves to endure, even in this time. As far as personal politics went, Speranza had no interest in marriage as a social institution, which was oppressive financially as it was socially. She was not, however, a woman incapable of love. On the contrary, she was a passionate romantic, describing a personal feeling that seems almost at odds with her desire for feminine independence. She wanted to be a devoted partner, but finding a match worthy of the level of devotion that she promised would be difficult, if not impossible. Quote, In love, I like to find myself a slave. The difficulty is to find anyone capable of ruling me. I love them when I feel their power. Jane's meditations on marriage, especially in light of her sometimes wearying devotion to a genius like Sir William Wilde, are a fascinating study in her often contradictory nature. She was attracted to poets and intellectuals, especially those who could mentally or artistically spar with her as equals, and the lively and flirtatious letters she exchanged throughout her life bear this out. So it only seems natural that only a man like William Wilde could present himself as a worthy partner to Jane Algy, though he would put her passionate devotion to the test. The Wildes were married in a small, unannounced ceremony in 1851. Jane's mother had just died, perhaps adding motivation to her decision to marry this man she so adored and admired, and anything especially flashy would have been in poor taste. As it was, Jane wore a rich dress of limerick lace and a wreath of white flowers for the occasion, but quickly changed back into her mourning clothes. The married couple then established themselves at 21 Westland Row and thus combined their considerable abilities. While Sir William could be difficult, they were a love match and they seemed worthy of one another. They loved entertaining and keeping the constant tide of fascinating and distinguished persons flowing to and from their house, and their union didn't seem to limit their respective creative endeavors in the slightest. And both of them continued producing in their respective fields. Even when Speranza struggled a little bit, balancing her creative destiny with the realities of motherhood and tending to her husband's eccentricities. They were quite a pair. Sir William, quote, a wonderful conversationalist and raconteur, Lady Jane, quote, amusingly fearless and a delightful and fond of making a sensation. They certainly made a fascinating visual pair. Jane was described as being rather too magnificent, almost six feet and beautiful in a way that was classical rather than conventional, putting one in mind of a Roman goddess, a sharp contrast with her somewhat short, scruffy, but energetic husband. 
The Dublin of the mid-19th century was struggling to find itself, but did produce a fascinating array of individual figures around whom began to flow an atmosphere and undertow that began to shape the city. The Wilds' home in Marion Square was a cornerstone of this swirling build. Quote, In the absence of any other aristocracy in residence in Dublin, Sir William and Lady Wilde represented a type of grandeur that they had built with their books and their brains, their independence of mind, and their high-toned eccentricity. Their married house in Westland Row, and shortly thereafter at one Marion Square, was famed for its hospitality and social atmosphere of the intellectual and unconventional. A bit too much for some. But among their set, they were considered the Jupiter and Juno of their own private Olympus. W.B. Yeats wrote that he often, quote, explained Wilde to myself by his family history, that every odd and unruly thing that Oscar did had some root in his parents' formidable intelligence and unmoored strangeness. The senior Wilde set a peculiar example to their son, loving, devoted parents who shrugged off social convention, the foundation built seemingly on Sperenza's ability to weather any storm brought on by her brilliant husband's indiscretions. We'll continue talking about his presence in Oscar Wilde's life for another few episodes, but eventually, Sir William died in 1876. As he lay dying, Speranza would permit an unidentified woman who arrived completely veiled and was politely, if somewhat strangely, unacknowledged by the rest of the family to sit at his bedside. To this day, no one knows who this woman was or who she might have been to Sir William. I've never even read speculation as to a name, but what a gesture on Jane's part. Sir William's passing emotionally and financially devastated the family in a way that Lady Wilde must always have feared when thinking of all those ways that marriage disadvantages a woman, and then some, when she learned of how little of Sir William's assets were truly his. Tragically, his death was preceded by the deaths of two of his six children and immediately followed by a third. First, little Isola, the daughter he shared with Jane in 1867, and then his illegitimate daughters, Mary and Emily Wilde, together in 1871, when their Halloween party dresses caught fire and they burned to death. And the summer after his passing, his oldest son, Henry Wilson, also died suddenly of an illness. We'll talk a little bit more about the fallout from Sir William and Henry's deaths a few episodes from now. Lady Jane Wilde moved to England when Oscar and Willie moved there to pursue their careers, where she became known for her eccentric but well-regarded salons. She kept writing and publishing, though she would never be especially financially stable. None of the three of them ever seemed to be very good with money, as is often case with artistic souls. And she would be a supportive, if extremely melodramatic, presence in her son's lives until her death in 1896, while Oscar was in Reading Jail. She will no doubt assert herself in the upcoming episodes as we go along. Delving a little more in-depth into Oscar Wilde's parentage than I had initially planned really underscores what remarkable raw materials went into Wilde's earliest foundations. If one believes in fate, one could imagine no one more suitable to bring Oscar Wilde into the world than William and Jane, their son destined for a life that sometimes feels composed rather than simply lived. From William and Speranza, Wilde was born into a milieu of genius and opportunity, scandal, tragedy, and paradox, furnished with remarkable materials and artistic examples to begin fashioning the earliest iterations of his self. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Bowerbird Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please consider tossing a coin in my tip jar at coffee.com slash a scholar of no importance. You can find me on my blog, ascholarofnoimportance.wordpress.com, and there you can find the text version of this lecture, including sources, as well as all of my other work on Oscar Wilde and his world. For blog updates and show news, including when the next episode is going to be released, follow the show on Instagram at BowerbirdPod. Interested in serious Wildean scholarship? 
Consider joining me alongside members of the Oscar Wilde Society. Details can be found at oscarwildesociety.co.uk. Intro and outro music is Narcissus by Kevin MacLeod.